0: We are walking around life, and here's an uplifting Christmas message for you. We're walking around life a hopeless people. We function, we have good times, we have momentary pleasures. We are going to be around some people we like this Christmas season. Not everybody we like, and we won't be around people that we always like. It's not interesting about families? It's like you're supposed to be happy around people you never see and people that treat you like jerks because somehow you're somewhat blood-related. or something. I never understood that. But apparently it's the thing to do. It's family. Anyway, so we're walking around a hopeless people. We wonder if our world is ever going to be right. We have people that come along that tell us they can help us make the world right. And we kind of want to believe that, even though intellectually we're saying it's not in any human hands to do that, but we just want to believe it. We wonder if we'll ever be right. We've seen our own failures over and over again. We see that we have to restart the whole process Every single day, it seems. And yes, even devoted believers in Christ, we fall into this trap. Faith, as a uh, theologian says, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, faith is an act of logic. And I love thinking about that because we typically think the opposite of faith is using our head. Faith is this kind of thing you have to believe in magic in order to have any of it. But the theologians saying faith is actually an act of logic when we think rationally when we believe. But when we give in to fear and uncertainty, what, you, what we've really done is we've yielded to our feelings. Our feelings tell us that everything is going south. Our feelings tell us that nothing's going to last. But logic would tell us opposite. And like we said, even strong believers, those who are anchored in their faith in Jesus Christ, have this challenge because we're all made we're all created, we all possess, um, we were created with intellect, we were created all wrapped up in emotion, and then we were given this, this will that has to be tamed and surrendered to the, to the voice of the Lord. And so because we are created ones, we have all this same struggle. Some of us have put it in a better perspective, some of us have grown in our faith, and so we understand it better, but like we said last week or the week before, if you are walking in this life in Christ, chances are the longer you go and the deeper you get, the more you realize you needed to be rescued. The more stuff you see inside of you that really needs to be surrendered to the Lord. And so we would think it'd be the opposite. The longer we go, the easier it gets. And there are some aspects of that kind of training and repetition that get easier. But for the most part, our sin just gets more brought to the forefront. We see it coming out of our heart where when we were younger in our faith, we were a little more slick at keeping it covered up. Now, as we're coming into Isaiah, it's important to remember that that um, Isaiah was speaking to a particular people. He was talking to people who have been kind of going up and down a roller coaster, if you will, uh, in their leadership and their experience of who a godly king was and that kind of thing. And I don't mean to paint the people of, of uh, Judah and Israel as people who were just so hungry for godly people to be in place. I mean, they often went for those that were wicked leaders and stuff, and so they really did get what they deserved so often. But it's important to understand that when Isaiah was um, was sharing the vision that the Lord gave him, he was doing this over a span of four kings that would come through Judah during Isaiah's time. Now, when he gives us the prophecy that we've been studying in Isaiah 9, obviously all those kings haven't been introduced. But still the pattern, if we look at it real quickly, uh, is is pretty interesting because I just want to look at how these four kings were labeled, how they're... they're um, their rule was summed up in terms of the scriptures to help us better understand what it's like to go through this this cycle of up and down when we have a good leader and then it doesn't go so well and then we, we keep finding uh, a hope in the next person. We kind of anchor ourselves and maybe the next guy, the next girl is going to fix it. Uzziah was the uh, first king under Isaiah's term here as a, as a prophet for God. And uh, 2 Kings 15 tells us that... Uh, Think about this. He came into power when he was 16 years old, and then he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father um, Amaziah... I always want to say Amaziah because it just sounds better. Amaziah had done. But there's a little bit of a caveat here. It says only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. It doesn't go into a lot of detail there, but what it's really talking about is traditions... And, um, and, and sort of like pagan rituals and stuff that are happening. The, um, Uzziah did a lot of the right things and had a heart for the Lord, but he wouldn't necessarily get rid of all the things that people were doing in error before the Lord. And you can think, because he's a human, and because not much changes throughout the centuries and decades, you can think there'd be all kinds of reasons for that. Maybe it's political pressure, or maybe it's um, something he just didn't feel like he wanted to get to yet because he had other things. Who, who knows what the reasons were, but he didn't do everything... Uh, That his heart for the lord was telling him to do and so verse five says the lord struck the king So that he was a leper to the day of his death didn't kill him didn't remove him from office But he just punished him For what was obvious to him What he should have done and he lived in a separate house while jotham his the king's son Was over the household judging the people of the land So we get introduced to jotham and the scriptures tell us a little bit later that he was 25 years old when he became king And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. This isn't counting the overlap he had with, uh, you know, being sort of like the mouthpiece for his dad and stuff. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did it according to all that his father Uzziah had done, even in fact, in verse 35 it says, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. So even Jotham did a lot of great things, had a heart after God, but still followed in the steps of his father, even though he saw his father struck down with leprosy. Kind of interesting how that works. Isn't it funny how our cycles of rebellion, no matter how obvious we see in front of us, you know, we always say, yeah, my father died of lung cancer. <laughs> You know, we do that. It's just so funny how it, when it comes our turn, we make our own decisions and we can kind of put the the punishment in the past. Ahaz, we get introduced to, but we actually heard about him a couple of weeks back because uh, this is really the tone of of what's going to change. And it shouldn't be that much of a surprise for us to be introduced to Ahaz, who is going to be someone who's doing just the opposite of what God wants because we see the pattern, the lineage. Anytime you and I have this... Uh, It's the same thing that struck David's lineage earlier on and stuff. Anytime you and I have this half heart for the Lord, we kind of want to do things for the Lord, but in practice, we don't really. Chances are that uh, the next generation underneath us is going to follow that and say, hypocrites, I'm doing my own thing. So it shouldn't really shock us that by the time Uzziah hands down to Jotham, Jotham hands down to Ahaz, that the scriptures are going to tell us that he was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not... He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire when we had the kids in here We had to kind of give that some some adult terminology and code words and everything But he's basically sacrificing his own children to um, To this God and having them pass through the fire, which really means they don't come out The other side if you know what that means um And so according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense. He didn't just get rid of them, but he participated on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So we can see the degradation. We can see the pattern going downhill. And this is the thing that always gets us. This is the thing that keeps us hoping that maybe our Savior is going to be human. Maybe our, res- our, our, our rescue is going to be something that we can conjure up. Because now we introduce Hezekiah. And Hezekiah returned Judah to faithfulness. He did, as the scriptures say in Second Kings 18, he did right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father David had done. I like how they skip a few generations to point him towards that lineage. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this is a great story of how the Lord still continues to be faithful to his people. He doesn't give up on them. He raises up a man named Hezekiah to do the right thing, to return his people back to him. Um, These portions of Scripture aren't necessarily telling us if it was the people that were just like, we need a, a godly king and everything. This is lineage that we're talking about. But you see, just to, again, tap into the mode and the mood of the listener when Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 comes is that people are thinking at the time boy i don't know our security our stability this this whole idea of, of us being right before the lord that could turn on a dime how do we know what the next king's going to do how do we know when when uh, his wickedness is going to draw his heart away from the principles of the lord there could be that going on. There could be the faithful that are just really concerned that this is going to turn at any moment. Then there are also a huge part of the population that feel relaxed when somebody doesn't do all the stringent rules that God's laid out, right? We, because of our human hearts, we go, finally, we can let loose. If our leader's going to do it, then that means I can do it too. So we have that going on. There's so many pieces of this that you and I can relate to in 2015 because we are, we're so consumed with who's in charge. We're so focused on who the leader is at the time when we're talking politics and things like that that it's important for us to say, okay, you know, how much of, how much of our hope could be drawn towards the temporal? How much of our hope could be wrapped up in another human being? So while the the people of Judah experienced mostly good leadership during Isaiah's writing, uh, good in quotes, you know, for the most part, fairly stable, they recognized that their success could change from one generation to the next. Their security was false because the strength of their leadership was only temporary. And then comes into that whole realm this passage from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 that we've been looking at, which says, For a child will be born to us, We've come to understand that these four titles that are given are uh, titles of authority, titles of reign, titles of rule. These aren't just some descriptors that the Lord just said, well, I want people to know this about him. and this. These are, these are actually uh, names that are given to, to hold up the, uh, the legs of his throne, we said metaphorically. And so the, uh, the, the first term being wonderful counselor, we understood to be that he is truth. He needs no advisors. There's no room at his table for any of our opinion. He doesn't need it. And we talked about how when you just have somebody who's a smart guy but doesn't have any ability to do anything about it, he's just kind of the, the, the one who solves you know cancer in his basement but can't do anything about it. Nobody knows because he's got no resources, he's got no power, he's got no ability to go out and do anything about it. So fortunately for us, the Lord gave us uh, um, uh, a complementary title of the Son of God and that was that he would be mighty God because he also had the strength to carry through what his wisdom, what his truth was telling him to do. He had all authority to do that. And last week we talked about when you have the imbalance of mighty God, if you don't have wonderful counselor, we said that strength and resources and power without wisdom is abusive. And so because in the Son of God he would be complete and he would be all that the people needed, we have a balance of those two. And then he gives us a phrase here, Eternal Father. And I think the eternal part of this title is the thing that's the most difficult for us to wrestle with. Now, I know where you're going in your head saying, well, wait a second. We've got all kinds of father stuff this year. I mean, not, uh, not this year, but in this day and age. We've got all kinds of issues with dads and all that stuff. We've been working in our men's ministry to get that point across and everything. And that's true, but I don't want to do the typical jumping off point from the word father and just talk about how good... Of a father, God is. It is true that He is, and the scriptures are full of that description and that truth of who He is. And we will talk about this a little bit, but it's more important, I think, at this point in time to focus on this phrase that He is the everlasting Father, because that's the part that you and I are going to get stuck on. Whether our Father experiences are good or bad, I think the eternal part of this is the hardest thing for us to wrap our heads around, because eternality doesn't really enter into our equation. We were made. We have a beginning point. Everything we've experienced has an end point. We've just grown accustomed to it. We've established that phrase that we live by, nothing good ever lasts. So in our framework, in our thinking, in our approach to life, everything is temporary. And it's not really our fault. We were created. And when sin entered the whole um, atmosphere that we live in, that meant that we would have an end, that we would die and so that's been our experience. And after the fall of man, we were introduced to this struggle of control and that we want to manipulate everything to do what we want. And we want every situation to bend towards what we wish, what we desire. And eterni- eternity um, poses the biggest threat to our perceived security because it lives outside of us. I want to show a very simple timeline that took me all of maybe three minutes to, to generate the hardest part in this was coming up with the smallest circle I could, I could generate. So, so really simple, silly kind of graphic here, but I want you to picture something here. Um, it got a little off-centered here, but it doesn't really matter. You see the two ends are, have an arrow going in this direction. So I want you to think from an eternity past perspective and eternity future. That tiny little dot in the middle, just imagine these lines don't end. So I guess in that sense, that's probably better. It runs off the screen. But just imagine these lines don't end. Imagine these lines being much fatter, much longer. You'll never see the end of them. And that tiny little dot, if I could have made it smaller, I would have, is all of the history that you and I are familiar with. All the experience from the creation of the world to our present day now. All the things that have gone into um, our history, our framework, our, our understanding, our culture, even in our own uh, span of life. You know, in our own 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we've been given on this earth, if we live to the averages and stuff, is just even a piece of tiny little dust on that little circle. And God, what the scriptures are saying here is that God is the everlasting father, which means he is the father of, rather than looking at this from a standpoint of being daddy, which he is. The scriptures tell us that he is. But this title is, if you were to switch those two around, saying the father of, of the everlasting. We would say that, you know, our founding fathers are the ones that originated our country. They were the authors of our constitution. They were the the, um, the the framers of what we live in in our society and stuff. And so we call them the fathers of our country, just like God is the father of eternity. He is the originator. He is the author of eternity. So he owns that line to where it doesn't end. And he owns that line to where it doesn't end. And so just a quick question of application here. If you and I live on a speck that you can't even see on this tiny dot in the middle of all that, who are you and I to question the truth, the wisdom, the guidance of the owner of those two lines? He's given us this tiny little dot to live out life. And yet we approach him this is why these titles of being titles of authority are very important for us to respect. We approach him as somebody that could be counseled with. We approach him as somebody who needs to hear our opinion, don't we? I'm raising my hand. And, and we do this all the time because of the way that we carry around this sin inside of us. It has given us this instant perception that we can kind of poke him in the chest and say, Not today, buddy. Maybe you've owned all these other things and maybe you've ruled all of that, but this is mine right here. This little sliver is mine. If you see it in perspective like this, it starts to reveal to us who we think we're pushing around. Scriptures tell us in Psalm 102, of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. Now here's what we can relate to. All of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you'll change them and they will be changed. We're used to our stuff wearing out. We're used to our cars dying, our clothes ripping. We're not used to this last phrase which says, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. So as we think about this timeline, we have to start squaring away our understanding of who the Son of God is, who the coming Savior is, who the one that the people were being promised, who He really is... Is When he arrives, is he somebody that can be counseled? Is he somebody that can be strong armed? Is he somebody that can be um, reduced to our own timeline to help him understand what we're really going through? Or is he somebody altogether different? The reason why these lines really mess with us is because we are finite people, we have a real hard time dealing with past and we have a real hard time dealing with future. And because of who we are, we mess it up in all sorts of ways. Primarily, when we're thinking of the past, uh, when it runs through our grid, the part that we really struggle with is all the regret that we carry, all of our guilt from remembering who we've been in the past. Thinking about the fact we've had people tell us, you know, over and over again, I don't think God can really save me, especially if you're telling me He knows everything. That means He really knows what I've done. I don't think He can forgive me of those things. Because we are finite, we live in the little dot, we don't recognize that He owns everything from before. God has seen it all. And knowing it all, He still sent us His Son, who would die for us and forgive us of our sins if we received that in humility. And so we carry all of our regrets. We carry uh, long lists of bitterness because maybe it isn't the things that we've gone out and done, it's the things that we've received. When we look at, at past, we go, well, I can't get past some of the things that have been done to me. And so we carry around this warped view of what's happened behind us and we get stuck in those things. If you think about it, just do like a little mental exercise for yourself. I was thinking about this week, and as I think about my history, the things that pop up first and foremost are not all the things that I was glad I did. Not all the things I think I did to perfection. Most of what I think about in history, the way I've lived my life is time wasted, or um, the way I handled certain friendships and other relationships in my youth and being silly and arrogant and all that kind of stuff. Maybe um, the lack of saving enough money when I started off. My typical filter of thinking in the past, and and I'm I'm stepping on a limb to think I'm not just because I'm a negative Nelly. That that's how we typically process history, either the things I've done wrong, or even the the things that have been done wrong to me. All of those things are important; they're not to be discarded, but they own our past. They rule our thoughts as we are playing out history. In our mind. And so the, God's people were given hope because a different king was coming. One who wasn't subject to the roller coaster ride. One who's seen it all in the past. If we're carrying around regrets from all of our guilt, there's hope in the scriptures. In Proverbs 28 13, it says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. One of the The best uh, passages of scripture for dealing with the history of our own sin and understanding what God does with it and the price he paid in order for us to, uh, to get rid of those things is found in 1 John 2 where it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or the one who pushes back the wrath of God, the one who holds back God's wrath on us. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So when we think about that line that runs off the screen, all that stuff behind us, what are we thinking about? Are we thinking about the things we just can't get over because we know how bad we were, all the mistakes that we made? So often we throw out phrases like, well, I know God's forgiven me. Intellectually, I can see it in the scriptures, but I just can't forgive myself. And I'm not sure if I can get over these things and stuff. And so we stay stuck in what's going on in the past. And I want you to just find some hope in this one thought, though, if you would. Um, the, the reason why we say things like I can't forgive myself is really because we still have a memory. Wouldn't it be great, so we think, that every time we said we're sorry for a sin and God says, I've covered it, I've washed it, he would also just, boom, erase it from our minds and we wouldn't be stuck on it. Typically when we say, I know God's forgiving me, I can't forgive me, there's a dangerous pattern we don't want to be in, for one, because God's forgiveness cost him everything, much more than we could offer. So you think about, we're on that tiny little dot, he's the manager, he's the owner, the author, and the originator of those eternal lines, and we're saying, thanks for the forgiveness, but mine's more important. We don't want to go down that path. But I think I understand when we say that, it's because we still remember. When we give these things over to the Lord and we ask Him for forgiveness, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes forgetting becomes kind of like a byproduct of His forgiveness. He grants us in time over practice. Living in forgiveness, He gives us a shorter memory about our sins. And if it doesn't completely go away, it away, It gets put in a place that we can actually use to fuel us to do right in the future. You see, there's hope when when Isaiah tells us that the uh, that there will be an originator, a father of eternity, entering our world. It starts to have immediate application. We got to be careful, though, not to review these two categories, these areas of of uh, of of guilt and bitterness, out of proportion. For those of us that are carrying around a lot of bitterness, we've had a pretty rough go of it, a bad track record, or a bad just really hurtful things that have been done to us please understand that in this father you have somebody who has seen every pain every hurt and that's part of our frustration isn't it that why didn't he stop it if he saw it and i can't answer that for you but i do know that because he is a loving father because he cares that he is with you in the pain and he seeks and desires to heal you through it be very careful though not to have your own um, failures, your own shortcomings in life that, yes, did not deserve what you received, but don't let your own current failures and shortcomings, because, yes, you're human too, uh, don't let those be minimized while you only overemphasize all the wrong that's been done to you. Does that make sense? That's our temptation. When people do things to us, we make that all of our excuse and all of our reason for not moving forward. And then the stuff that we do to others or the stuff that we've done to offend God, we make very, very tiny. It's very important as part of the healing process not to give in to that temptation. Therefore, we can echo with Paul when he said in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm well content with weaknesses. Those are the things that we do wrong or we can't do out of our own strength with insults, with distresses, with persecutions. All those things come on us, whether we've deserved them or not. With difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. We also have another end of the timeline, and we're going to move through this fairly quickly here. We have a difficult time processing future as well. You think about we get stuck in the past. Our memories start to build a case against uh, having hope. And the same thing happens when we look to the future. We have a tendency to either fear what's coming down the line or we worry too much about the problems of tomorrow instead of dealing with the problems of today. That's how we humans in our sinfulness and brokenness deal with the future. That's why we need an originator, an author of eternity future because we can't seem to handle it well on our own. So he comes in. And even uh, uh, continuing in Isaiah's prophecy later on in in the book, in chapter 40, he comes in with great love. It says that like a shepherd, he'll tend his flock. In his arm, he'll gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He also comes through with strength a little bit later in that chapter. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might. And the strength of his power, not one of them, is missing. When we worry about the future, what we're doing is we're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong day. Or we're putting, I should say, maybe the right emphasis on the wrong day. Being, in a sense, or technically speaking, worried about the things of today, we call concern. What we call worry is waiting for the sun to come up. We're not waiting for the sun to come up and still dealing with all of tomorrow's problems and the next day's problem and next week's problems and everything. But the God of eternity, the author and the originator of eternity, is saying, listen, there's enough of that stuff coming for tomorrow or next week, so enjoy that hopeful message. But deal with the problems today. You can even start addressing the problems of tomorrow a little bit today. So focus on those things. That is the antidote to worry, but because... We're made with intellect, emotion, and a will that fights against God's will. We struggle with that. It's easier said than done. But worry is taking our eyes off the one who owns the future. But the bigger picture of this title, this everlasting father, is that since God has always been and always will be, there is nothing that has happened or will happen that he hasn't, brace yourself, put your seatbelts on, as an allowed or even authored. The whole human race, as we said at the outset, seeks comfort in temporary things. And it seems to help us, even though momentarily deal with things that are too big for us, when, when, when the s- subject that we're dealing with gets way beyond, obviously, way beyond our control, that's when we start reaching for those temporary things. We need something to control. But should that not underscore the fact that we crave stability in a God who is not bound by time or circumstance, that maybe that desire, that hunger, though we use it sinfully, maybe it was originally given to us to recognize that we needed to surrender to one who owns both of those timelines, the ones that do not end. These temporary comforts, they they brush us up against the consistent love that we desire from an eternal father. The listeners of Isaiah's day connected with this promise because they saw the brokenness in royal family lineage in all of its inconsistencies and the temptations to give in to human frailties. All of this was allowed to expose the void in their hearts to accept the everlasting father. Now, by and large, they didn't. When they saw who he was, we've said this over and over again, when they saw who the everlasting father was, they didn't really see him for who he was. So they passed him by. But God had given them this obvious hole, this major void in their hearts to see that you crave someone who owns eternity. So the question is, and I guess this could probably be rhetorical because I believe the answer is yes, does the same hole exist in you and in me? So maybe a better way of asking it is, are we allowing God to expose the void in us in order to lead us to a God who is authored Eternity. The owner of eternity is not stuck on your past mistakes. The author of eternity is not crippled by your past sufferings. The originator of eternity is not shaken by your future. It's time we give our trust to him and square away our sinful actions that we've done towards other people. We ask for the strength to properly use the hurt that has been inflicted on us. And do the right thing today that will help us in the future instead of freaking out about how tomorrow will turn out. Because the God who owns those two lines that run off the page is the same one who owns the life that we are living on the tiny little dot and we can surrender that to him.